In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadir Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. No studio number because uh, I'll be on Instagram live for the show, but you can call in on Wednesday's show. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is Mortality by Christopher Hitchens. And so this book was recommended to me by a friend, Alex. He's actually recommended a few books recently that I've talked about on the show. Um, But he said it was a very interesting book that Christopher Hitchens, who passed away several years ago, but he, uh, through these essays in this book, shares some of his thoughts and experience um, with death and facing his own death. I don't know much about it other than that, but look forward to reading it this week and discussing it on Monday's show. I did realize as I picked this book for this week that it's maybe a dark book going into the, the Christmas week, but anyway, Mortality by Christopher Hitchens, that's the book of the week for this week. The book of the week from last week that I will discuss tonight is Algorithms to Live By by Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths. Algorithms to Live By the Computer Science of Human Decisions. And this book, um, it's interesting, was about computer science and it it felt that way at times and um, sometimes I had a hard time getting into it, but I did find some uh, insights from it that were quite interesting or even the premise to me I had some thoughts about because when you think of applying computer science to human decisions and the authors I think did a good job discussing this it might seem like something's missing because we think of computers as cold robotic and so if they're making decisions about human life human experience maybe something would be missing and and sometimes I felt that even in reading the book but they make the point that there's lots of things that we can look to computer science to understand how we might make the best decisions that we can make um, in a different in a specific situation or scenario Um, so uh, I really did enjoy some things that I will share now to begin with the word algorithm I'm not sure for me this was something I learned of where the word algorithm comes from Um, it's actually the Persian mathematician Khawarizmi, Khawarizmi. Thank you, Amir. Helped me. I, I I practiced the pronunciation a few times. I even Googled it, and it's funny because when you Google it, a lot of times you get the American pronunciations. Um, so his name actually gives us the word uh, algorithm, and his book, which had algebra in it, is where we get the word algebra from. But so I thought that was interesting. I know um, people from all cultures like to take credit for certain individuals and definitely Iranians and Persians are no different. So the word algorithm, which we hear so much today, you know, you hear about Instagram's algorithm, Facebook's algorithm, and then a new company will come out and they'll say, we have an algorithm um, 
to do this or that. And we think of it as such a computer science-y kind of a thing, but as they say that uh, an algorithm is just a finite sequence of steps used to solve a problem. So it doesn't mean it has to just be for computer science. As they mentioned, uh, even a recipe for bread is technically a uh, algorithm. So um, that's something to to keep in mind that when we think of algorithms, we might think it's just something like computer science and it's only for computers, but anything we do, essentially, it's an algorithm. So they discuss different um, lessons that we can learn from computer science throughout the book. And the first one has to deal with an interesting problem that we all are, uh, or set of problems that we have to deal with called optimal stopping. And essentially what optimal stopping is, uh, when you are trying to make a decision where you have to pick between uh, a series of candidates, whether it's people for a job, people in dating, which they mention, parking spots, where you're going through a series and essentially you can't go back. So imagine you're looking for a house and when you get to that house, you have to either make an offer or pass and move on. Now, if you pass, you can't come back to that uh, house. And if you buy it, of course, then you can't see what else you could see out there. So uh, you kind of feel that you're stuck in this tough spot of what do I do um, in this type of a situation. And so they talk about these um, twin regrets of Scylla and uh, Charybdis, which is from like Greek mythology, uh, the one that got away and the stone left unturned. So you're stuck in a way, or at least you have to balance these two uh, dynamics where you uh, don't want to let a good one get away. Because let's say you pass on the house you're looking at, you might get to the end of your list of houses you can look at and be like, oh, I wish I didn't miss that house. And uh, conversely, you might be worried, well, what if there's a a better one out there, the stone left unturned. And so when you're trying to get the best possible uh, place, we would always say, of course, you want to balance um, looking and then making a decision eventually. And we'll always say that, and I'll say that balance is a very easy thing to say, but as they discuss, well, what does balance mean? How do you know exactly how much to look and then when to leap? And that actually gives us the name of the algorithm look then leap, which I'll talk about, um, which they find in computer science or doing a bunch of uh, uh, you know, mathematics and looking when you would be likely to get the best choice, that you should look 37% of the time that you, or 30% of the candidates, and then once you've done that, pick the best candidate after that point. Now, the scene's very specific, but they show the math that helps explain that. But let's say um, you're going to look at 100 candidates to hire for a job, and you are going to look at them sequentially. And for the purposes of this type of example, when you see the person, you have to either offer them the job or pass. So you can't see them all and then go back. Uh, what they would suggest based on the math is that you would look at 37 of them and not commit no matter what, no matter how good any of them seemed. And then after that, you would take the best one you see after that 37th one, after which would be 37%. And this would give you the most likely strategy to end up picking the best person. And then there's also some uh, math and algorithm, algorithms to help explain that once you get closer to the end, 
you might want to commit because let's say you're at the 99th person, even if it's not the best person you saw, you might not want to then pick the 100th person. Essentially, you'd be um, looking at if it's 50-50 to make the decision of if you should pass on that 99th one or go to the 100th one. So it gives you some math to kind of consider these types of things. And you might think, well, when am I in this kind of situation? They share looking for a house or a place in San Francisco, which is one of the more competitive housing markets, whether you want to buy or lease. Um, But they also talk about dating and, and love. And so here I think there's definitely some good points that are made and some good points that we can all take when it comes to making even the most important decisions in life, like picking someone uh, as a partner. But sometimes it felt like something was lacking uh, or it could be overly simplified when you just approach it from a computer science mindset or purely mathematical mindset. Now, what I think is interesting is uh, it's look then leap is the name of the algorithm. I like this poem about love. It's called Leap Before You Look, which in a way ties into some of the points that I'll also make later that were brought up in the book, but that you can't wait till you know everything to make a decision. And almost never can you do that for any decision, even using computers, which they talk about. So when it comes to love, like a lot of big decisions in our life, you can do a little bit of your due diligence, so to speak, in getting to know someone. But at some point, you have to leap without really looking or knowing exactly where you're going to land. Um, But they're saying that this same uh, theme or dynamic or problem of optimal stopping is what we see in serial monogamy, where people are trying to find a partner. Now, one person had this, um, you know, they use that 30 7% rule. And they said, well, if I'm trying to get married between the ages of, let's say, 20 and 40, you divide that time up. And after 30% of that, 37% of that, then anyone I find better than someone I've met, I should marry that person. And I think this is an oversimplification for multiple reasons. Um, One is who you are at 20 and 30 is going to change. But also, what does it mean to finding the best candidate? This is a very complex type of a decision or um, assessment to say who is the best partner for you. And so I thought that part, when they looked at it as, well, just figure out, crunch the numbers, basically, it's much more complicated than that to think of it as uh, just find the quote unquote best person. So actually, they had a comment or in, in here something about um, when you're trying to make this type of a decision that, you know, you might people might say see a therapist, but they say you don't need to see a therapist. Um, you, you need to actually just use this algorithm, which, of course, as a therapist, I might have taken slight offense. So they said they don't need a therapist. They need an algorithm. The therapist tells them to find the right comfortable balance between impulsivity and overthinking. The algorithm tells them the balance is 37 percent. I don't know if I'd ever tell a client to find a balance between impulsivity and overthinking. I mean, to a degree, you, you can't overthink and you have to make a decision doesn't necessarily mean um, it's being impulsive. But what I think is important in in something like finding a partner is when you even say, I like this person, understanding the why that you are attracted to that person or you find this person as a good candidate is complicated. It's not so straightforward. And sometimes the reasons you like that person might actually not be good reasons. So I would recommend looking at the why and not just saying, uh, you know, you can assess it in some easy way. Also, assessing a person as a partner is not something like a job interview that's going to take one hour. It, It takes a 
particular considerable length of time. Um, and it's not something that you easily can just say, well, I figured it out quickly. And then there's a process of if you break up and afterwards and working through all that. But nonetheless, it does bring up a good point still, which is that, you know, that feeling that like the stone left unturned, at some point you're going to have to go ahead and make a decision. And can you be certain that no one on planet Earth would be a better partner for you? Quite frankly, I would say almost definitely someone on planet Earth, if you could scour the Earth and meet every single person, would be better than whoever you are with. But you find someone who is good and good enough, and you choose that partner. And a lot of decision-making does come down to this. What I found interesting is there was a chapter in the book talking about how um, sometimes randomness is okay. And this I found interesting because as someone who doesn't quite understand all uh, a lot about computer science, um, you know, you just assume that computers are computing, as the name would imply, everything and finding the best possible solution. But what you actually see is that sometimes computers, there are certain problems that are too big to really figure out, too big to even calculate, but even too big to really figure out what's the optimal type of thing. So they're okay with some randomness. I found that um, quite interesting, but in a way it makes us feel a little bit better when we're making decisions to realize even us as human beings, how can we assume we're possibly going to know all uh, what is the optimal decision? We can never have all that information. So you have to make what feels like a good enough decision a lot of times. And good enough is good enough. That's going to be okay. And even computers are doing good enough, let alone us as human beings. And especially this is important because when I work with my clients and they're making important decisions or trying to choose a career path, uh, whatever that important decision might be, whether it's in love, career, work, uh, something else moving to a city, what they'll often feel is none of the decisions feel perfect or almost all the decisions will have something that makes them anxious. They're a little bit worried about this in this city. They're worried about that in that city or this partner makes them feel this way. Uh, marrying them feels this way. Breaking up with them feels that way. And so what we try to look at is all of them are going to make you feel anxious and anxiety makes us want to go away from whatever it is that's making us anxious. So that often makes us do is make no decision at all, or we think we're making no decision in action, which itself is a decision. Every moment you don't do something, you're deciding to do that nothing, whatever you call nothing in that moment. And so it's recognizing that no decision when it's really big, important, there's a lot of weight behind it, is going to feel like the 100% right decision. And seeing that even computers with all their computing power and using all these algorithms and the you know processing speed that they have for sometimes simple or what might seem like a simple thing, we actually recognize it's much more complicated than that. So I thought that was interesting to see that even computers, uh, you know, they, they are sometimes random and they know they can't figure out the perfect answer, but they know that good enough is good enough or the computer scientists. I don't, maybe I'm already assuming uh, that, that artificial intelligence is as conscious and they, they're choosing what to do. Um, also, there's relaxation. So in a similar type of vein, uh, sometimes they see that if you want to solve a particular problem, it might be too complicated. So you have to relax some of the rules. And same thing goes in life. You're not always going to be able to find a perfect solution that fits all the parameters you're looking for. Good enough can be good enough. So it was interesting that 
in a book that you're thinking it's about computers and computer science, everything is going to be so precise. Uh, one of the take homes for me was that realizing even in computer, um, you know, computer world, computer um, computations, they don't get everything or anything completely right. So we should take that, uh, you know, let ourselves off the hook. And at the end of the book, they shared some lessons, one of which I'll quickly share, um, is that, you know, we, we try to make the best decision in the moment. And what they the way they t- termed it was, you focus on the process, not the result. You take a look at the information, you make the best decision you can, and all you can do is base it on that moment. You don't know how it's going to turn out. So should I start this business or not? You look at all the different information, talk to people, do your research, and then you make a decision. It might not work out, but it doesn't mean you made a bad decision because really we should judge a decision based on uh, what you knew when you made that decision. And so that was interesting that they included that. And I think that's something important for people to keep in mind as well, that you're not always going to be responsible for how things end out, end up. Um, you're responsible for making the best decision in the moment. Uh, So, you know, the book had some interesting insights looking at computer science and what it can teach us as humans in making decisions, not because we should be like computers, but that at times looking at how computers work can help us recognize what might be the optimal decision to make in a certain situation. So that was Algorithms to Live by, The Computer Science of Human Decisions by Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, you know, so in this segment, I wanted to share some predictions for 2021. I always think, uh, you know, I was talking about algorithms and making decisions. And I actually always feel like when people make predictions, um, there was a book by Nassim Taleb I talked about a couple of years ago, Skin in the Game. And so he was talking about how a lot of times people make predictions and there's people in the media, even in sports. I love watching sports and they'll come on and say, this is why this team is going to win. This is why this team is going to lose and exactly what's going to happen. And it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. They're still on the next week. There's really no consequences. So I was going to make some Um, In a way, it's not really a prediction specifically about 2021, but some thoughts in a way related also to computers, computer science um, that might be related to some things I'm noticing in the world. So, you know, this year, of course, 2020, it's one of those cliche things you can say anything and say, oh, 2020, right? Uh, Because of how kind of crazy of a year it's been, how different it's been, unique in a lot of bad ways. Of course, the coronavirus has killed lots of people, made many people sick, but also our world has changed so much this year. Um, And so one of the big things I've noticed and even experienced myself is that there's been such a lack or a decrease in especially in-person connection and communication. We're all getting much better with Zoom and Skype and FaceTime and all sorts of other things like that. But um, face-to-face seeing each other has become much less, and it's something that we miss. Uh, And so what I think is going to happen is once we start, hopefully in 2021 at some point, you know, people talk about things going back to normal. We don't know exactly when. We're hoping with the vaccine That can have some impact, but then we hear there's a new strain in the United Kingdom. Then they're saying they hope and they believe that the vaccine will uh, be able to protect and defend against this 
new strain, but we, we don't know for sure. Um, but I'm hoping at some point when we get back to normal, I think people are going to recognize and realize how much we enjoy, benefit, and need face-to-face communication and connection. Some people are already experiencing this because they are spending time with their family more at home, working from home, kids are home, definitely has some negative aspects to it too. But people are spending more time with one another. And I think people are going to start to recognize and feel how much we missed that feeling, how much we needed that. And it's one of those things that it's not like hunger for food or water that you are going to instantly feel and instantly quench. But connection is one of those things that it can slowly start to have its effects when we aren't feeling as connected, aren't feeling as close, aren't connecting with one another. It it can be um, cumulatively, it has an impact on us. And I believe that when people start interacting again more in person, seeing each other, hugging, being close to one another, we're going to see the value or recognize just how much we value it because we didn't have it. We didn't intend to lose it for this long or in this way. But I think we're going to recognize the true value of human connection because it was taken away from us in some way. Now, how I would relate that to uh, the book I was talking about, about computer science, a topic that's come to my mind recently also when we look at automation. And so with automation, people talk a lot about job loss, that so many people's jobs complete sectors of the economy or the job market will be eliminated or replaced by machines. And so people think, well, what will people do? What are we going to do as far as um, having jobs for people that they can now do if their job becomes automated? And I think there will be crises and adjustments and things that we'll have to go through. But one of the things that I think will happen is that it's going to bring about or create more jobs in the human connection side of things. So for example, people with disabilities very often will need or will really be benefited from having a person who can support them all that maybe depending on what they need 24 hours a day, half of the day, or for certain things that they do. And oftentimes that can't be done by a machine or robot or it's obviously dehumanized when it's done by a robot or machine and there's a certain touch or feeling that would have uh, or given by human to human contact that would be required or in education we can always use more people with kids or in different areas of life or raising our kids we might realize i think we have such a focus on jobs meaning things that quote unquote make money um, and even that we determine what makes money and what we pay for but parenting is something that i think people will recognize that families need to have parents home or they benefit from that And we should value that more, even in some way, paying or providing somehow for parents to stay home or stay home more, or at least somehow be able to be with their kids for a longer period of time. And we could value that and somehow make that part of what matters in our world, in our society. And I think that would be very important as well. So I think as we lose the need to do some of the jobs that maybe people are doing now, even driving, people say, well, so many people drive, what's going to happen when 
We have enough self-driving cars where people won't need to drive truck drivers to people who do taxis, Ubers, all those kinds of things. I do think there's going to be a lot more um, ways that humans can connect that we can actually benefit from and allow people to connect more in that way. Spend more time with one another. And even looking at the mindset that we have, especially in the United States, but in a lot of the world, that people need to work 50 hours a week. This is something that's just kind of a remnant of how things have been and how we've been doing things. And we think things have to be that way. But do they have to be that way? Do we need people to be in an office 50 hours a day? No. And what actually people are also seeing with the pandemic is maybe they don't need to be in an office at all. And a lot of things still can function. Or we can work less in some ways and still interact with our families in between and make things work. So I think that when we become more automated and we have this process of um, a lot of jobs being quote unquote taken away, it will allow for us to go back in a way, but in a positive way, to our earlier way of being where we were spending time with one another. So I think it's kind of interesting, and this is going to be um, in some ways a caricature of human history because I'm going to miss a lot of parts and I'm sure simplify a lot of parts. But if we think back to our uh, let's say, hunter-gatherer days, we would spend a lot of time together. Now, uh, you know, they would have to, as the names would apply, hunt and gather, take care of things. But if we look at how much time they really needed to survive, we see that it, it wasn't a whole lot. So it wasn't like today, there wasn't really someone working 100-hour weeks back in our hunter-gatherer tribes um, thousands of years ago. And of course, some might exist still, but I'm thinking of when we think of most of the people, let's say, that are able to watch the show who are um, using the technology, we're living in what we think of a civilized society, which I think is quite interesting that we think of ourselves as civilized. But if we look at a lot of the ways that we live our lives, it's very uncivilized, um, where we don't take care of lots of people. If you look at the uncivilized, how we used to be, uh, yeah, we didn't have some of the things we think of now as being civilized, but we really would make sure everyone was okay. We don't do that. We can have thousands, millions of people, even billions, not that min that long ago, who didn't have enough food and, and different things to survive in our civilized world. But that is much more uncivilized if we think of it from a moral standpoint. So we think of some type of measure of technology or having buildings or certain things that that determines civilization. That's a technology of a certain kind, but our emotional and moral technology has deteriorated over time. And so we would spend time together, make sure everyone was more okay, families would get to be together, parents would be with their kids much more closely, which was good for them, and we lost that. Then when we moved into farming, uh, things started to change. And really, one of the things that happened is that few people would live very comfortably. And then everyone else virtually would be struggling to survive. So when we moved into agriculture, there was people that owned the farms over time and owned land and owned different things. And then most people were working to take care of really essentially those people. And then there's a lot of... Um, political and economic tools that were used to maintain the status quo. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, definitely one of my favorite books of this year. When I do my top 10 books, I'm sure it'll make the list for 2020. Um, uh, Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. But he was saying that there's always been throughout human history inequality 
And the inequality has been justified by certain types of ideologies. So, well, the king came from God. And so, of course, we all must work for the king. And we can't even question the king's sanctity and his goodness. And we should die for the king. And we love the king. Uh, and so because of that, if there's inequality, how could you even talk about that? It should be. We should give him even more. And so if all the peasants are suffering, this makes sense. It justifies the inequality. So then we see through, as we got more and more quote unquote civilized, we saw this inequality grow to a huge degree and people working much harder just to survive. More hours, more strenuous work, they would get injured more. And of course, then there's a whole, you know, uh, as things got more industrialized, but even before that, where workers were not taken care of, and then there's workers' rights movements and all sorts of things. As I mentioned, this is a, a fast forward and a characterization or a caricature of the history, but we do see that these things were happening where people, uh, when we thought we were getting more civilized, really what was happening is some people were very well taken care of, but most people were suffering just to survive or struggling to survive and not having even enough time to spend time or were not able to spend time with their families as we got more advanced in this way. So when I think of this kind of arc of what we're going through and kind of it's actually a 360 going back to the beginning is uh, we were able to live together, spend time together in this way where we could have a lot of human closeness and connection. But then as we got in this more civilized, as we thought, industrialized um, type of a society, we were less able to do so just to survive in a strange way. So it's funny to think that by what we thought were advancements in technology, we actually, I think, devolved in our ability or took a step back in our capability of spending time together and valuing relationships, which when we look at most research on happiness, we'll find that the quality of our relationships is what keeps us happy long-term. Not joy as in, you know, like pleasure type of happiness, but long-term happiness is going to come from the quality of our relationships. So that took a backseat to work became the thing. But what I hope will happen is as technology advances, it will allow us to go back to this beginning, but the beginning isn't worse, the beginning was actually better, where we can spend more time with each other because machines and, and different things and the technology will have, will have advanced to take care of a lot of the work that would have to be done by hand or by human labor. That will become less. The need in a way for human labor will become less and economists can come and really, I'm sure, teach me a lot and explain a lot about how that would work. But if we can still create as much, but people don't have to work as much, my understanding would be that the economies would still function okay, but people would have more time to be with their loved ones, with their friends, with their families. So my prediction for 2021, or one of them, is that as we spend more time together again, we're going to see how much we missed it and how much, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone, how valuable this is. And that will hopefully make us keep this in mind as we go forward and as new technologies arise and as we're creating new laws and ways of living, we will not lose sight of this value, the value that comes from being able to be together face to face to spend time with one another. The value that comes from parents getting to be home with their children and spend time and see them grow. 
I hope that we will recognize that. And I have, again, it's my prediction and maybe an optimistic prediction. And then I hope that as technology advances, what we'll recognize is that we might be losing jobs, but we might be opening up human potential and capacity and human time to spend with our loved ones. We don't have to be workers. We can be human beings that do some work, but recognize that our main work is to be human and to be with one another. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, During the commercial break on Instagram Live, someone asked about online dating during COVID. I thought that could be a good topic to discuss. Um, First of all, just dating in in the COVID time in general. I remember back in March, I thought this was likely going to happen, and I, I did see it happen a lot, that people would go back to their exes uh, during COVID. So for a few reasons. One was with COVID, it, it created this sense of panic and anxiety. People were very uncertain about the future. Thinking about a virus brings up thoughts of our own death and mortality. Um, that was a, a shout out to the book of the week, Mortality by Christopher Hitchens. Um But thinking about our mortality makes us think, well, we become more connected to the fact that um, we uh, don't know how much time we have left. So people felt a bit of a panic to to be with someone. And of course, when it's a panic to be with someone, the easiest thing is to go back to someone you've already been with than trying to find someone new. Uh, Also, there was this sense of loneliness that was coming up from everyone being disconnected from being home, not seeing people. And when we feel lonely, oftentimes we want to fill that void and people will say, oh, I started thinking about so-and-so. And when they start thinking about someone, they think it's about them. But what you always have to ask yourself is when you're thinking about an ex or thinking about being with someone, is it really about that person or is it because you are feeling lonely and you want to fill that void. And that's a very different feeling. Wanting to be with someone is different than uh, I feel alone and I need to be with someone to take away that pain. So it's not about going towards something. It's going away from the pain that you're feeling or in a way is behind you. So I, I, I saw this happening and I could see it happening and in some ways predicted that this would be um, something that people would experience. And we can understand it. So a lot of people did that. You saw a lot of people going back to their exes. Even there's this song... Um, where it says, if the world was ending, you'd come over, right? I don't know if you've heard that song by Julia Michaels, and I forget the guy's name. It's actually, I think, his song. But anyway, so people were kind of thinking, well, if the world's ending, you might as well be with someone, and it could make sense to be with someone that you've been with before that you knew. So a lot of people went back um, to their exes during the, the initial and even during corona, or at least thought about it or reconnected with them. Now, the question was about online dating. So... To begin with, I am very much in favor of online dating. And the reason why I say that is there's still a stigma attached to online dating. Uh, It's way less than it was before, but I still see it. I think the Iranian community is a little bit um, behind in sometimes some of these things where there's still the stigma is even stronger within the Iranian community. So both on the show and also with clients, I, I had a lot of people that were against it it came off to them as desperate uh, or looks like you know they should be able to find someone or what if someone sees them on there and I always joke and I say well if someone sees you online dating they're on there too so you don't have to worry about them judging you they're already there themselves so um, 
I, I always try to encourage people because I think it's nothing that we should be afraid of. And it's not online dating, as I always try to make it clear. It's online meeting. So essentially what you're doing is you're expanding the pool of people you would have access to meeting or connecting with in your day-to-day life, even before, but especially now. Uh, you know, you'd meet some people, but when you go to an online dating site, it expands the pool and you have people that you know are looking to date. Now, of course, what they're exactly looking for, whether it's short-term or long-term, that could be a different question and one that is important to talk about. But you know you're on a platform that people are all looking for a romantic connection, whatever that connection might be. So I think it's a very good way to expand your possibilities. And, you know, in a way we could relate this to the algorithms to live by type of mindset, but you're just increasing the number of people that you could potentially date or be with. So I always encourage people um, to get on there. Now, one of the things I always recommend is to communicate in as direct a way as possible. And maybe I should say that a different way. So you meet online and this is what people get afraid of. Well, online dating, how do you know the person? Well, you connect online and then you meet in person if you can. Now, in the age of COVID, that becomes a little bit more complicated. Uh, I don't want to encourage people to meet. I know a lot of people, they meet in person, but they'll wear their masks and go for a walk. So in a kind of maybe acute way, it's made us a little bit more old fashioned in how we date. Not everyone's following those guidelines or those types of rules, but it can make you a little bit more old fashioned where you speak on the phone and then you go for a walk uh, and then you, you know, you might get to know each other in that way, which might actually be good in some ways. But a lot of the traditional ways of dating, usually you meet at a coffee shop or at a restaurant, um, those things we can't really do right now. Right now in California, you can't do indoor dining or even outdoor dining. So it does limit some of those options of the traditional dates, dinner and a movie, not really possible right now unless you do that at home. So that does make things a little bit harder, but I'm all in favor of trying to connect in whatever way you can. And online is definitely a good way to do that. But so even if you can't see each other in person or you might delay that, what I would always recommend is don't just text. Only texting with someone is a very dangerous way to create what I would call a type of false intimacy, false connection, false sense of a match without really knowing what you've got as far as how good of a match you would be. So uh, I've seen people and they'll say, I've been texting this person for three months and they think they're in love because they're texting every day. And the way you can, of course, text, it could create this also false feeling of connection like you're together the whole day. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm good. And then now you go throughout your day together, maybe even sending each other pictures of this is what I'm doing now. This is what I'm doing now. And in this way, you feel like you're together the whole time and you're really getting to know each other. And you start to form an attachment to this person that quite frankly, you don't know very well. And so what I've seen people do time and time again, and even with my clients or personally, where they'll say, I've been talking to someone and they finally meet, this is pre-COVID, and they finally meet after months, let's say, especially if it's like months of texting, and they feel so close. They've been texting all day. They send jokes, memes, whatever else, pictures and all those things. And then they finally meet and there's this very weird feeling where I thought I knew this person so well but now I feel like we're strangers. 
Now, a little caveat to that, that of course, when you're finally meeting in person, there's going to be some anxiety. So you shouldn't expect that you're going to hit it off the same way you were over text. But still, you have to be very careful about this sense that you can feel like you really know someone, but you don't really get to know someone until you're with them in person, or at minimum, you want to be talking on the phone. So I would very strongly uh, recommend against keeping a relationship in message or texting form, which a lot of people do, especially a lot of people do in um, adulterous relationships where they're trying to hide it. It's a lot easier just to text here and there, erase the messages. And this unfortunately even more contributes to the sense that one, it's forbidden, but two, the sense that we really love each other when really they don't know each other very well. And it's mostly in their head. So when we text and we don't actually get to know one another, this leaves a lot more space for idealization. Essentially, we could think of idealization as as much as you know each other actually, Whatever is left in knowing someone, you're gonna, you can idealize, or at least there's room for idealization. So if you know someone a very thin slice, there's a lot more room to idealize. But if you actually get to know them very well, the space to idealize them becomes less and less. So if you're only texting with someone, you're leaving a lot of room for idealization, which is very dangerous because you're going to think you know them and you're going to think they're amazing and all these special things, but we don't know if they are any of those things. It's mostly you're creating it in your head. Actually, as I'm saying, it reminds me of when you're reading a, a you know a piece of fiction, a book, you're filling in the scenes in your head of what the author is writing. Similarly, your love with this person that you think is growing might be a fiction. It might be only in your head and not in reality. So someone is messaging on the Instagram live, is video call better? I would recommend that. I still think face-to-face can't be replaced. Maybe I should make that a slogan, but face-to-face connection can't be replaced. But if you don't have that option, definitely first from text upgrade to phone at least, but definitely video would be even better than that. You get at least some sense of the visual as well, which is good, but just seeing each other connecting in that way gives you a little bit more insight into the person, at least a little bit better than you, definitely more than you can in text, not quite as good as face-to-face, but it gives you something. So I definitely recommend that. What's unfortunate is, and this is more true of the younger generation, but it could be true of everyone, people prefer texting because it's easier. There's less anxiety for multiple reasons. Well, one is they write something, you know, you might be going back and forth, but still you have time to write what you want to write. It's a lot easier to kind of say things in a way that might not, you know, come off a certain way or you want it to come off this way or that way. There's a lot less anxiety with texting than there is with doing something in person. And this is where we always have to be aware of not taking just the easy way around out. Something might feel better, but feeling better can mean lots of things. Feeling better could mean it's good for you. It's something you should do. Or feeling better means you're taking the easy way out and actually interfering with your own growth or seeing what's there. Because when you talk to someone on the phone, you'll be more anxious. Things are more likely to not work out compared to texting. And that can be a little bit scary. And so what you're really trying to do is prevent a feeling of pain or prevent things not working out or potential even rejection and keeping in in the safer space of let's just keep texting one another.
And with a younger generation, you'll see, you know, memes and things online joking about, you know, who calls each other this day, or if someone calls you, you kind of get shocked. Why is someone calling me? Because people just don't do that anymore. So we're, you know, going into this realm that texting becomes a norm, but it's something that you, I would highly recommend against. And so if you're starting to talk to someone and you're texting and texting and texting, it could be fun and nice, but I would recommend taking that step and saying, hey, what if we, you know, let's have a phone call and if they're open to it, also a video call and push that button. Now, they might get uncomfortable. They might say, oh, I prefer text, but I would really push this. And if the person can't even handle a phone call, well, that's already a red flag of sorts that something's not quite right here. So when you are texting with someone for a, with, for a while and it feels good, it's understandable. It feels good. It feels comfortable. But we always want to make sure we're not staying in a comfort zone that's hurting us in some way. And in this case, it's going to be hurting you because you really won't be getting to know the other person. So definitely move up to voice call. And if you can move up to a video call, sometimes that's the best you can do, especially with uh, the things that are going on with COVID, you might not be able to see each other in person or if it's longer distance, but I would recommend at least doing that. And if you can see each other in person, even if it's wearing masks, social distancing, going for a walk together, being in the presence of one another gives you a better idea of what the attraction, comfort, chemistry is sometimes this catch-all phrase people use, but really it's about attraction and how comfortable you feel with one another. So that kind of chemistry, you'll get a much better sense if you're in each other's presence than even you can in video. So in a way we can look at them as levels of closeness or levels of facilitating closeness and getting to know one another a genuine closeness. And we would start with texting, moving up to voice call, video call, then in person. Even if it's with a mask, if that's all you can do, I would highly recommend doing it in that way. But in the original question about online dating, whether it's during COVID, whether it's after COVID, I'm very much in favor of that because I think it can help facilitate some of this getting to know one another. And then the other thing using, uh, coming back to the, the book that I talked about today, the look then leap, one of the things that people can be concerned about is with online dating, you could feel like there's just hundreds or thousands of potential partners out there. So people get hooked on the search and it's not really hooked on the search. It's actually that they maybe don't want to commit or get close to anyone. So they can be getting to know someone. They say, but you know, what? I don't know what else is out there. So we get more concerned with that fear of uh, missing the stone left unturned. What if there's something better out there, but we might actually uh, have the one that got away. So yes, you want to look, you have more options. But eventually you need to pick one option and get to know that person. And quickly, I just have about a minute or two left. Uh, dating multiple people, this is sometimes a question. Initially, to me, that is okay. By that, I mean when you're first talking to someone, it's not that you can only text one person and then you're going to have to wait to see if they respond to even res talk to anyone else. You can talk to multiple people, but once you really want to get to know someone, you need to make it exclusive. Now, this might be... Again, if you're online, it can make it harder or long distance. But if you're especially in person, maybe after five dates, six dates, 
and it depends on how close you're getting. It's important to be exclusive for multiple reasons, but one of the very important ones is you don't really know what it's like to be with someone until it's just you and that person. So for example, if you're some girl and you're talking to five guys, not like the uh, hamburger place, if you're talking to five different guys, you let's say you're talking to one and it's not going so well or he makes you feel kind of weird, but then you just text the other ones and you don't even get to feel the feelings or go through the process of going through what it's like to be in a relationship with him. So once you get to a certain point, it is important to make it exclusive and to have a conversation about being exclusive. Don't assume that. People tend to assume that very often and they can get hurt. Uh, But to go back to the original question, online dating, I'm definitely for it. You just want to make sure it's about online meeting and the dating is as if you met them in person. Try to make it in person. Make sure it doesn't just stay in the text world and see if there's a match. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night.